Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. It is the middle of August, which, if you live in a reclaimed swamp like I do, or really anywhere in the summery northern hemisphere, that means the height of mosquito season. With a citronella candle and some bug spray at my disposal, mosquitoes are more of an annoyance than a danger. Though, with the spread of West Nile and Zika viruses, they're inching closer to the latter. Travel to any of the hundred-odd countries where malaria is endemic, and it's a different, deadly story. Plus, malarial zones often have dengue fever, yellow fever, Japanese encephalitis, chikungunya, filariasis, a laundry list of diseases, only a scant few of which have vaccines or even treatment beyond palliative care. Last year, mosquitoes, via the diseases they carry, killed 830,000 people, which is, incredibly, the lowest number on record. If we look back even further, for all time, one estimate puts the mosquito's death toll at 52 billion people. That's almost half of the human beings who have ever lived on the planet. How did such a wee little insect manage all that? To answer that question, the historian Timothy Weingard wrote The Mosquito, a massive book spanning 496 pages and 1.6 pounds, or the equivalent of 291,000 Anopheles mosquitoes, covers human history as far back as we can go, through the present and even into the future of gene editing. Timothy Weingard, a professor of history and political science at Colorado Mesa University, joins us from Grand Junction to unmask the mosquito for what it is, not just a deadly predator, but also a serious historical actor. Thanks for talking to me, Tim. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. So, Tim, one of your backgrounds as a historian is in military history, which at first glance might make the mosquito seem to be an unusual subject. But from your very first sentence, you make clear that, quote, we are at war with the mosquito. How did you land on that framing? Well, my previous books have delved into certainly military history and also global indigenous people. And I served as an officer in the Canadian and British Armed Forces as well. So military history is a, is a passion of mine. So I think given the fact that the mosquito is still, um, as an animal, the number one killer of human beings, it, it seemed pretty logical to just extrapolate to we are at war with this mosquito. Uh, we've done everything throughout history to try to lessen her, her impact and her death toll. And seemingly, she's been able to circumvent all our frontline weapons that we, we've thrown her way, whether it's DDT or other insecticides, but also um, the majority of, of, of the diseases or pathogens that she transmits um, have also been able to circumvent our, our best means of extermination, um, specifically malaria, which has been the scourge of humankind uh, across our existence. Sometimes we think we as humans uh, get to control our own fates, and that's certainly not the case. There's external influences that have shaped our history from, from the very beginning, and the mosquito has certainly steered human history across our existence from the rise and fall of Rome, for example, uh, or the American Revolution, and certainly with the Columbian Exchange numerous nations uh, in the Americas. Yeah, well, speaking of Rome, I think your claims about it are super interesting because I I can see the mosquito in the context of destroying an empire quite easily, and we'll get into examples of that. But you contend that the swamps around Rome and the mosquitoes in them actually helped the Roman Empire, right? 
Well, essentially, Rome <laughs> had a, a Faustian pact with the mosquito. It was a double-edged sword. So, yes, at the beginning, um, the, the marshes you referred to are called the Pontine Marshes, which roughly 310 square miles of, of, of marshland east of Rome, extending south towards Anzio. Um, they acted uh, essentially as a, as a shield, um, a malarial shield from invading armies coming into Italy and trying to take the eternal city. city. And we see this with Hannibal and the Carthaginians. He never directly attacks Rome. We see this with the Visigoths, the Huns, the Vandals. So at the beginning, it allows Rome to flourish and acts as a safeguard to promote empire. But at the same time, um, endemic malaria in Rome, but also in Italy itself, eventually starts to sap and bleed the vitality and manpower of Rome as well, whether that be for mines or for farms or for military. We see endemic malaria start to eat away at the fabric of Rome itself, which ultimately plays a part in the downfall of the Roman Empire. Well, and the rise in Christianity too, which was probably one of the reasons the Roman Empire fell too, right? So what, what did Christianity stand to gain from the mosquito? Well, as I say in the book, I w there were numerous factors that led to the slow progression of Christianity from being a, a persecuted faith for the first two or three hundred years after the crucifixion of Jesus to eventually conquering the minds and ministries of Europe. It wasn't solely the mosquito, and I would never be so historically reckless just <laughs> to say it was the mosquito. But the mosquito, specifically malaria, certainly played a part in attracting converts, um, given the endemic malaria surrounding Rome and, and throughout Italy uh, from these Pontine marshes, as mentioned. So uh, originally Christianity, it was a duty to care for the sick and provide healing for the sick. It was seen as a spiritual duty, and they actually established the first true hospitals. So it attracted many converts, given this endemic malaria surrounding Rome and throughout Italy, as a remedial faith and offered some hope and caring and uh, facilitated, certainly, converts to Christianity uh, in the early days. Were there any things that contemporaries could do to combat the mosquito or combat malaria beyond sort of you know, hospice care after someone had already been infected? Like, what did the fight against mosquitoes look like at this time in human history? Well, the first known anti-malaria is quinine from the chinchona tree that grows actually originally in Peru up in the Andes. So it isn't until we have the transference of ecological and biological systems called the Columbian Exchange in the centuries following Columbus that we have an old world disease and a new world cure in the form of quinine. So originally they tried, given that malaria was pervasive across Italy and other parts of Europe, certainly in, in Africa, they tried all sorts of things from the Egyptian practice of bathing in fresh human urine to um, the Roman practice of wearing an amulet uh, inscribed with the magic word abracadabra, which is ex essentially summoning a cure. But obviously none of this, this worked. Uh, the Romans prayed to Phoebus, the fever goddess, on, on hilltop temples surrounding Rome. Um, so it wasn't really until we unmasked the mosquito as the deliverer of these pathogens and various diseases uh, that we could begin to combat the mosquito in, in the true sense scientifically. And, and we didn't unmask the mosquito until the late 1800s, early 1900s, well, before we get to the unmasking, I, you know, there's a couple devastating things that happen between the Roman Empire and the 1800s, including the Columbian Exchange, as you mentioned. So, I mean, can you talk about how a little bug managed to decimate 
a whole continent's indigenous people, basically, and the repercussions of that? Um, well, it's fairly common knowledge, and there's been tons of historical research about the fact that indigenous peoples globally, and, and in this case specifically in the Americas, uh, didn't possess immunity to European diseases. They had never known these diseases. So mosquito-borne diseases are part of a larger disease um, tartan fabric, if you will, that included smallpox and influenza and tuberculosis, and also the mosquito-borne diseases of malaria and yellow fever, which were paramount killers as well. They didn't have any of these diseases, so when the settlers and certainly African slaves start penetrating into the Americas, what they do is bring with them these diseases in their in their blood from the malarious areas of Europe, whether that be Italy, Portugal, Spain, certainly their pit stops in Africa. Um, so these diseases come to the Americas, and what's an interesting fact is the Anopheles mosquito is the vector for certain species, the vector for malaria. Now, old world Anopheles mosquitoes and new world Anopheles mosquitoes followed a distinct evolutionary path for roughly 90 to 95 million years. So the Anopheles in the Americas had never known malaria, but immediately they start vectoring malaria to the Europeans and, and others who brought the malaria with them in their, in their bloodstream, but also to indigenous peoples. And it's quite an astounding fact that these mosquitoes were able to do this almost immediately. And then yellow fever, which was also a paramount killer in the tropical colonies in southern United States, up all the way up the East Coast, in fact. So yellow fever comes in the blood of slaves. Uh, it's ancestral to West Central Africa. But also the 80s mosquitoes that transmit yellow fever hitched a ride on the slave ships as well, and then eventually settled in the Americas. Let's talk a little bit more about slavery, because that's kind of a, an ironic twist, right? That slaves that were brought over from West Africa were chosen partially to f have malarial resistance, and yet they also brought over these other diseases that were then vectored by mosquitoes. Can you just, I guess, spin out that narrative, how the devastation of indigenous American populations plays into you know, the later genocide of the transatlantic slave trade? Well, obviously, the transatlantic African slave trade is one of the, the largest evils in, in humanity. But certainly from an economic standpoint, um, importing a slave from Africa to the American plantations is more expensive than using an indigenous slave. The problem is the indigenous peoples of the Americas, unfortunately, died out very quickly from not only malaria and, and yellow fever, but also other European diseases. European indentured servants who weren't seasoned to malaria, who had never known malaria yellow fever, also died quickly in, in the colonial furnace of mosquito-borne disease. So Africans, because... Malaria and yellow fever are ancestral to Africa. Natural selection kicked in and started promoting certain genetic mutations, which included um, Duffy antigen negativity for vivax malaria and sickle cell for uh, falciparum malaria, which is the most lethal strain of the five human uh, malarias. So they did survive the, the hotbed furnace of malaria in these colonial uh, plantation colonies better than certainly indigenous peoples or even European indentured servants. And because they survived, they became profitable in themselves in a way to produce profit via sugar, coffee, or any other uh, of these crops that were being grown in southern United States and the Caribbean. Well, and in the U.S. struggle over slavery in the U.S. Civil War, uh, the mosquito continued to play an outsized role in the proceedings. Can you talk about how the mosquito affected specifically the American Civil War? 
Well, we have to remember that everybody, one, thought the Civil War would be short, and two, that when the war starts, Lincoln's sole war aim is to preserve the Union, and that includes the economic integrity of the Union. It's not to abolish slavery. Um, slavery is not an issue of the war at the beginning of the war. So the, the Civil War actually is a twofold. The first is that after the first Battle of Bull Run, we realize that this is not going to be a short war and Union forces are seemingly being, being defeated across the battlefields. In 1862, the Union launches assaults both in the West and the East into Confederate territory, which is a hotbed of malaria, obviously. And these northern tr these are northern troops who come from places outside the malarial belts of the United States, and they're not seasoned, if you will, to malaria. So in the West, the Union launches fruitless campaigns against the pinnacle port of, of Vicksburg on the Mississippi River, and they're, they're crushed and shattered by malaria. And at the same time, in the East, we have General McClellan's Peninsula campaign um, to try to take Richmond essentially through the marshes and in, in waterlogged fields near Yorktown. And McClellan's troops are also cut to pieces by malaria. So inadvertently, the war is prolonged by the mosquito. Because the war is prolonged, Lincoln has another major war aim that he throws into the mix, and that's specifically the abolition of slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation in January 1863. Now, the war is prolonged, and once the Union blockade, dubbed the Anaconda Plan, begins to take effect in the last year, year and a half of the war, the Confederacy is starved out of all resources which includes quinine, which is the, the anti-malarial of the time. By 1865, an ounce of quinine on the black market cost $600, which expresses how malaria was rotting away not only the civilian population, but also the combat effectiveness of Confederate forces. On the other hand, the Union had ample stockpiles of quinine. So because of this difference in the anti-malarial and then malaria rates lessening in the, in the Union and increasing the Confederate forces, which were already over, um, overmanned by Union forces, the mosquito inadvertently helps um, solidify and win the Civil War, thereby ending slavery with the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. It's so amazing to me that I mean, like in the fall of Rome or the spread of Christianity, a little insect could have such an outsize impact. And of course, it's just one factor among many. But still, it's all the more remarkable because no one really knew this insect was to blame until after the Civil War, when the mosquito was finally unmasked as the scourge behind malaria in the 1880s, as you write, and then in the early 1900s with the work of Carlos Finley and Walter Reed. And that sort of unleashed what you call a total war on the mosquito, with some pretty unsavory consequences. Not just Nazi scientists during World War II, but American tests on non-consenting subjects and, of course, things like DDT. So how did that total war unfold? Certainly the Nazis out of Dachau and other concentration and death camps. Now, Dachau was the head of the Nazi tropical medicine program, and they did horrific experiments on um, Jewish prisoners dealing with yellow fever, malaria, and also testing out drugs uh, on these prisoners as well. But we have to keep in mind the same thing happened in Australia. The same thing happened here in the United States. Statesville Prison being one of the big ones where, you know, thousands of inmates were used as test subjects for malaria and yellow fever and experimental counter drugs. But there's a personal lean towards this with my, my wife's grandfather. Mussolini successfully 
drained the Pontine marshes just prior to the Second World War, and actually malaria rates fell by over 90%, not just in Rome, but across Italy. It's quite amazing um, what he actually did. So when the Allies are pushing up through Italy, the Nazis purposefully reflood the Pontine marshes as an act of premeditated biological warfare to reintroduce malaria, not just to the Pontine marshes, but to Italy at large, uh, to prevent the Allies from, from, or slow the Allies down from pushing up. So my wife's grandfather actually contracted malaria for the first time in the war at Anzio. He also contracted malaria again for a second time at Dachau as a result of, of, of these experimental mosquitoes of the Nazi tropical medicine program as well so and he had no idea how any of this had happened i knew he had had malaria but he didn't know until i told him in the spring of of 2017 his usual stoic self he he kind of just looked at me he was 96 at the time and shook his head and said that all makes sense to him <laughs> wow quite the story it's really incredible i guess how far scientists are willing to go to combat this little bug and that goes for like later experiments too right with like ddt what does that battle look like over the course of the century and like why is the mosquito able to avoid being stamped out by quinine and then other anti-malarial drugs well there's two avenues of eradication for mosquito-borne diseases one is to target the vector or the transporter which is certain species of mosquitoes and the other is to go after the pathogen itself whether that be the malaria parasite or the yellow fever virus or the west nile virus what happens, though, is that both the mosquito and, in this case, if we're looking at malaria, they seem to be able to adapt fairly quickly and circumvent our, our best frontline weapons that we throw at them. And it happens genuinely rather quickly. So DDT, if we look at DDT um, coming out of the Second World War and then it, it, its blanket use both for agricultural purposes and its surgical use, if you will, to combat mosquitoes, um, what we see is mosquitoes adapt very quickly. So obviously now we know that DDT is harmful to other animals and DDT is also harmful to humans. Um, but if we look at DDT just as a mosquito killer, it was the wonder drug. Malaria rates across the world were slashed dramatically with the use of DDT. The problem is it took mosquitoes, depending on the species, anywhere from two years to 20 years to become immune to DDT. So by the time Rachel Carson writes her seminal work in 1962, Silent Spring, there were mosquito populations populations across the planet that were already immune to DDT. And the same can be said for malaria. By the time when we expose the malaria parasite to these experimental drugs to conduct our testing, by the time we release malarial drugs to the public consumption, if you will, in many cases, the malaria parasites already adapted and become immune and circumvented these frontline drugs as well. Keep in mind, malaria is a parasite, not a vaccine. So vaccinations in the true sense don't work. The only of the virus class, which there's so many that the mosquito transmits, yellow fever being the paramount killer, but also Zika, West Nile, chikungunya, dengue, a Japanese encephalitis, there's a, there's a list. Um, yellow fever is the only current one with a vaccine that was developed in the 1930s, uh, thereby essentially defanging the yellow fever virus. Um, so it has been an eternal struggle across our human existence with our, our most lethal and deadliest predator, as I say in the book, and seemingly our frontline weapons are, are quickly circumvented and rendered useless. Um, and that's why the mosquito is still the, the global killer of humanity. So, I mean, knowing all that, why not gun for the disease itself? Because 
we have flu vaccines every year, even though the flu also changes really rapidly. Does the fact that maybe like malaria is endemic in poorer countries have anything to do with it? Um, I would say that's certainly part of it. And what we're seeing, especially with the invasion of West Nile to the United States in 1999 through New York City, but even now what we're seeing in the southern U.S., if you have the right mosquitoes, you can transmit these diseases. So what we're seeing in the southern U.S. is domestic cases. Now they are sporadic and relatively minor, but we are seeing domestic uh, transmission of dengue, Zika, and chikungunya in the southern United States, specifically Florida and Texas. So that is a worry. And because these mosquito-borne diseases like West Nile Zika, dengue, are either emerging or re-emerging in the U.S. as well now, I think you're seeing more research and money to research devoted to mosquito-borne diseases in the mosquito. And certainly the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation deserves a lot of credit for waking the world up to the threat of, of mosquito-borne disease. It's, it's not a regionalized problem. It's a global problem that, that needs a global solution. What about more experimental technology like gene editing, CRISPR, which has been tested a little bit in some places um, to some controversy? Do you think that that's you know, a shot finally at getting rid of this mosquito? Well, CRISPR has been the media darling since it was unveiled in 2012. So essentially what CRISPR does is you take a section of DNA out and replace it with a desired one, permanently altering a genome. So it, it's it's Gattaca, it's Jurassic Park, it's, it's the whole sci-fi is now or could become reality very shortly. So in regards to mosquitoes specifically, uh, keep in mind of the 3,500 mosquito species, the majority do not transmit or vector disease. So nobody is promoting the eradication of mosquitoes off the face of the planet. And I think that'd be foolish to say that. So what they're doing, though, is targeting these specific mosquito species that are the vectors for these diseases. So one avenue is to CRISPR mosquitoes um, to make their offspring either sterile, infertile, or only male, thereby potentially bringing down that mosquito species. Now, the other option is to CRISPR the mosquito with a gene drive or a selfish drive that would be inherited down their offspring and down their bloodlines to simply render the, that mosquito species harmless by making it incapable of vectoring those diseases, thereby bringing down the disease itself, but not that mosquito species. Now, they're also using uh, bacteria to try to impede the mosquito's ability to vector, uh, specifically dengue. Um, so there's lots of avenues. There's uh, research going on and human trials going on with malaria vaccines as well. It's not the traditional vaccine virus vaccine, but they call it a malaria vaccine. So the, the future looks... I guess, promising in those regards. But at the same time, we've, we've thrown everything their way and they're still here and they're, they're still killing, you know, the most of any animal on the planet. So, you know, I guess we just have to wait and see what happens. And again, I'm a historian, not an entomologist, and I'm not one of these unsung mosquito warriors that, that are doing wonderful work in labs and in, in the field across the world. So I guess, you know, we don't know is the answer. We covered probably 50,000 mosquitoes worth of the pages that Tim wrote, leaving you with a quarter million more to explore in Timothy Weingard's new book, The Mosquito. As an added bonus, I can testify that the book works great for crushing the little suckers, but I urge caution when wine glasses or other humans are around. 
We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Thank you.